All right, good morning, Remnant. How are we? Fantastic. God is good and God is in the house, and I'm glad to be here with you and with him. So thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new to Remnant, uh, man, I'm just glad you're here. I, I think this is an incredible place full of incredible people who love an incredible God. So we've been in this series. Yes, we have. And we've been in this series looking at Christmas through the eyes of Isaiah. And the reason that I wanted to do this, it's so easy to go into rerun mode. It's so easy to go to Christmas and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to church. We're going to sing the same hymns we sang last year. We're going to read the same story we read last year. We're going to try to get fired up about it. But the reality is, is that we already know what happens. And it's very hard to get ourselves in that moment unless we look at it through a fresh perspective or new eyes. Now, one of the things that I hope that you recognize is that from Genesis to Revelation, God has been revealing his plan for the salvation of men. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, he began talking about his rescue plan. We understand his plan for salvation better than anyone who's ever lived because we have the Bible, 2,000 years of Christian history. We are more advanced in our understanding of what God is doing in the world than any human who's ever lived. We sit this Christmas closer to the return of Jesus than any humans who've ever, ever lived. We understand more about what God's doing. You see, Adam understood at a very basic level that God was going to restore the relationship that he broke through his sin. He didn't know how, but God said, one day there will be a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. He he knew nothing else, but he knew enough to have faith. David knew a bit more. He had a broader picture. King David had a deeper understanding of what was going on. The prophets had even a better understanding by the time they came. God began to reveal to them new information to them, not a new plan, not something God is developing, something that God already has, and he's revealing it now through his prophets. Then Jesus' disciples, they knew so much more than those who came before. They walked with God. They understood more what God was doing. Then the early church comes, and Paul, even more than that, comes. And he understands a little bit more, and God reveals through him a little bit more. Then the church fathers came. Then 2,000 years of believers full of the Holy Spirit, where God is revealing his truth all the way down to this little room in this moment today. We know more about what God is planning and doing than all the people that have lived before us. Not because the plan changed, but because our understanding increases as we're taught more and more by the Word of God, as the Holy Spirit shows us things that are new. You and I have access to a deeper understanding of God's plan for man than anybody ever has. It's never changed, but we grasp it better, if that makes sense. And so, as we've discussed many times, God is constantly trying to get us to move our thoughts away from the immediate and focus on the future. If I had one tip to people who are reading the Bible, I'd tell them, look, most of the Bible is about the future, not the present. God is constantly trying to get us to lift our eyes up off the present and see what's going on in the big picture. As we look at Christmas, often we just look back. 
But actually, the message of Christmas is to look forward to the return of Jesus. When we see how much they longed for the Messiah to arrive on earth, we begin to see ourselves longing for Jesus to come back. As they want the Messiah to come give them peace and set the world at ease, we look forward and we want Jesus to come back and set the world at peace. When we want and look at the world that has so many problems, we long for Jesus' righteousness and truth and love and peace to flood our world when he returns. We want him to establish his kingdom, to establish his government, his rule done his way. We long for that. And we know the promise. We've read Daniel. We've read Ezekiel. We've read Revelation. We know a day is drawing near. We can see the signs. We know that at any moment, Jesus can return for us. We not only know it, we feel it in our spirit. No matter what's happening in our world today, no matter what happens to us in our individual lives today, we have the blessed hope of his return to set all things right. Our world is very similar to Isaiah's original audience. We are down the path of God's revelation, his plan for man, but they look forward to the arrival of the Messiah in the same way we look forward to his return. Their world was a mess. Government was a mess. Their future was uncertain, and God had pretty much promised them that their certain was going to be, their future was going to be messy. God sent the prophet Isaiah to them into their mess to move their focus from the present to the future. You see, God sent prophets into the world all the time to say, stop looking in the moment and see the big picture. God, through Jeremiah, told them, look, there's going to be great days of joy to come. There's going to be celebrations like you've never seen. There's going to be an eternal peace that arrives on earth. I want you to focus on what's going to happen, not on what's happening. You see, we have a hard time understanding the anticipation and the excitement and the arrival of Jesus because we know the rest of the story. At least up to this morning. In many ways, Christmas is a rerun for us and we know the details and we've read Luke's story a hundred times. So I began praying for this series. I felt God tell me to focus on the meaning of it, not the events of Christmas. What did it really mean to those who were living in Isaiah's time looking forward to the Messiah, what was their salvation based upon? If Jesus hadn't died for them yet, if Jesus had paid the price for their sins, how did they get saved? What did it all mean that God came to earth as a human? What promise did God make to them and what promises he made to us now? What does this all mean? In this series, we're not really going to be talking about the manger or the shepherd's gifts, or, or, the, or the, the inn that was too full that night, or the kings, or, or the shepherd girls. We're not going to talk about any of those things. They're all important. They're in Scripture. But what I'm focused on this year is making sure we understand exactly what Jesus' birth really meant to man. Both Isaiah's audience and our audience today. And yes, just so you know, like I've taught before, in case you're wondering, and you're now off on a trail, the shepherd girls were girls. Just telling you, that's how it was done. All right. Knowing that Jesus was born is one thing. Knowing why Jesus was born is the secret sauce. 
Most people at Christmas focus on what happened and they miss why it happened or what it meant. We're looking through the eyes of an audience that first heard Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah. They had no idea all the things Jesus would do. They knew nothing about crucifixion and death and resurrection. They couldn't have imagined their Messiah, the Jewish Messiah that everyone was waiting for. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, out of Galilee of the nations, line of David, tribe of Judah. They could not conceive that their Messiah could ever be rejected. By pagans, yes, but by the Jews, never. And Isaiah has been telling them that this Messiah will one day bring peace. And there'll be a great celebration. Joy will fill the earth. God's going to do something spectacular. He was bringing his righteousness and his wrath upon his own people, but he wanted them to know that he'd be faithful to the covenant, that there'd be a remnant that survives. And one day God's people would see the joy and the celebration of Messiah. No matter how bad things got in the present, they should know that things are going to be glorious in the end. Because one day, the fullness of time had come and the Messiah would enter his creation. They'd imagine the arrival of this Messiah for decades. Would he be an angel? Maybe he'd be an angelic warrior. Maybe he's just a spirit in the sky. A ghost of some sort, perhaps. The Messiah was someone God promised to send, but he didn't tell us up until Isaiah's time exactly how that would happen. One day, Messiah would enter the world stage. But who is this all-powerful new figure striding across the world stage? Who is this incredible person through what magnificent manifestations? What miracle is God going to do to let us know that the Messiah is here? Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born. A child? Born? The Messiah would be human? Once the Messiah arrived, he'd have to grow up? We not only have to wait on his arrival, we got to wait for him to grow up and do something? We've watched the northern kingdom of Israel get brutalized and murdered by the Assyrians. We've seen what happened in Galilee of the Gentiles. We've seen the Babylonians on our border. We know they're ruthless and wicked, sparing nobody. And God's answer to everything that has and will ever terrorize us is a baby. We need a warrior Messiah. And we need him soon. Yet what they didn't realize and what we missed too is that the power of God is far superior to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and any other bullies in the world. He can defeat them from the perspective of a mere child. God's answers to bullies swaggering through history is not to become a bigger bully. His answer is Jesus Christ. A baby full of the power of God, and thus the only solution that can actually solve the problem. What God wanted the world to begin to understand is that God doesn't need our brains and he doesn't need our power. He needs nothing from us. Christmas is about him giving us a gift. Here's what you really need that you don't know you need. Here's a Messiah, a helpless, defenseless little baby. And as we look back, we understand God is always using the weak to fool the strong. He's always using the foolish to overcome the wise, and he's always using surrender to overcome oppression. Paul would later expand on this truth to the Corinthians. Let's look at this. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How could the Messiah enter his creation as a baby? He's full of the power of God. We know the outcome. We know what happens. Jesus is born. We know about the crucifixion and the resurrection. But to Isaiah's audience, it seemed foolish to put the salvation of the world into the hands of a defenseless, dependent, helpless baby. God placed the Messiah at the total mercy of fallen, sinful man who started trying to kill him before he could even speak. Within a year or so of his birth, world kings were trying to slaughter God's king. It seems so, so risky. And that's true unless you understand the sovereignty of God. Nothing could happen to Jesus unless God allowed it. Nothing unique to Jesus, the same is true for you and me. He is sovereign. Nothing happens to you, me, or any other human unless God allows it. But realize something important here. God's plan to save the world was not going to save them from the Babylonians. They still had to be punished. They had sinned against God. They turned their back against God. The Babylonians were coming. It was going to be absolutely horrible. They were about to be slaughtered and raped and tortured, and they would soon be eating their own children. That's happening. But in the midst of that reality, God says, I want you to know the future. You see, I want you to take your eyes off the present and see what's happening in the big picture. It almost seems cruel to tell them of glorious days and celebrations to come unless, well, unless they were going to be there for that experience. God wanted them and he wants you and me to know that our time on earth is not the most important thing. In fact, it may not even be that important. Everything should be focused on eternity. And God is letting them know and us know that he's working out his plan for eternity. Faith in the promise of the experience here on earth is the hope that we have. Isaiah's audience would soon be dead or exiled. They would go to Babylon. They had to suffer the righteous justice of God and punishment for their sins. They didn't have a Messiah yet to take their place. They lived B.C. before Christ. So let's answer a common question that helps us better understand Isaiah's audience and the promise of the Messiah. How were people saved who lived before Jesus could die for their sins? You ever thought about that? All the people who lived before Jesus showed up and died for their sins, how were they saved? Were they saved? If being saved is based on faith in Jesus, 
How did they have it? We know from many scriptures that you can't get to heaven by obeying God's laws. It's impossible. No one can be good enough. Because God is holy and righteous and just, he can't grade us on a curve. And if he did, how good is good enough? We know that everyone is saved in the same manner. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. There's only one way to be saved, it's a gift of grace through faith. To be clear, there have always been people accepted by God. Adam and Eve were acceptable to God as soon as he clothed them. Abel's offering was found acceptable, implying he was too. Abraham was credited with righteousness before God, and he'd done nothing except believe. David had his sins forgiven, and he had a few whoppers, and he enjoyed God's blessing. The prophets who wrote the scriptures were saved. In the time of Jesus, his own disciples knew they were saved before he went to the cross. John 6, 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away too? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They knew Jesus had brought them salvation. They'd been saved by grace because of their faith. Since salvation by grace can't be earned or deserved, it can only be received. Here's what Paul says. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not to the adherent of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham was justified because he believed God's promise. God chose Abraham for some crazy reason. Abraham was just a guy. And God said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to create nations and there's going to be offspring from you and a Messiah is going to come for you and I, God, have chosen to do this. I am going to bless you. Deal with it. And Abraham believed. And the, the word says that because he believed, he was set righteous with God. He hadn't done a thing. He hadn't placed his faith in Jesus. He hadn't even known. All he knew was that God had a promise and he believed God's promise. Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and counted to him as righteousness. Abraham gained righteousness not through his actions, but through his faith. God made him a promise and he believed it, even though the promise made no sense to him. How is my elderly wife going to have a baby? I don't know, but I'm going to believe. God's grace had chosen him and Abraham's faith had saved him. Let me repeat that. God's grace had chosen him. He did not deserve it. There was nothing he did. God showed up in his world through his grace. And because Abraham believed, he was deemed righteous. Abraham stands as an example. He was a pagan. We have this picture of Abraham like he was always this Jewish leader dude. No, he was a pagan. He wasn't even Jewish. The Jewish nation hadn't existed yet. He's just a guy walking on the planet, and God says, you. And I bet he went, huh, what? Who, what? He said, you, I choose you. You're going to be Abraham, and I'm going to make a nation, and you can't do a thing about it, because I'm God and I'm sovereign. And he believed him. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him aside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God presented himself to Abraham. Abraham believed everything God said, and the scriptures say that God bestowed upon him righteousness, a right standing with God. Abraham knew what was impossible for man could be possible with God. Jesus' 12 disciples, they knew they'd been saved. One might ask how they could be saved if they didn't believe that Jesus would die or rise again. There's times when they had no clue what was happening. They understood Jesus was the Son of God sent to deliver them from sin. They'd heard him teach that salvation was a gift received through faith and not works. They didn't know exactly how Jesus was going to save them, but they believed he would. They didn't have all the details that we have. They didn't have all the information that we had. They were before Christ went to the cross and paid for sins and resurrected. They didn't know all that. Here's what they knew. Jesus said he's here to save me of my sins. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I have faith in what Jesus says. So when the disciples, their message of salvation, the gospel message hadn't changed. They just began to understand more of it. Abraham anticipated revelation to him. Moses knew more than others. David understood the seed would be his descendants. Prophets talked about the Messiah. Jesus declared from the scriptures, from Moses and all the prophets, that the Messiah would suffer. After his resurrection, he presents himself. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in God's promised Savior. To those who lived before Jesus walked on the planet, their salvation was based on their faith in the promise that a Messiah would come. They didn't know the details. They didn't know he'd go to the cross. They didn't know. All they knew was God had promised a Messiah that that Messiah was going to save them from their sins, that that Messiah was going to restore their relationship with the Father, that that Messiah would bring peace to the earth, that he would reign as an eternal king. That's all they knew. They didn't know about the cross. They didn't know about crucifixion. Their salvation was based on their faith in the promise of God of a Messiah to come. Those who lived after that time, their salvation is based on their faith in the Messiah who did come and went to the cross and paid for their sins. Today, we are saved by looking back to God's fulfillment of his promise. We talk about it all the time. You were saved based on whether you believe God on a day in history, went to the cross and paid for your sins and died and resurrected. Our, our, our salvation is based on our belief that a historical day, that actually happened. We look back and we see that Jesus paid the price for us and we have faith in believing that and that faith leads us to a hope for the future that he's going to return and restore everything. Our salvation is based on what Jesus did on the cross. Their salvation is looking forward to the promise of God that a Messiah would come. And because they believe the promises of God through the scriptures and the prophets, even though they didn't know 
Jesus, even though they didn't know he was born a baby, even though they didn't know that he would be sinless and be the perfect sacrifice, they looked forward and they said, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I believe you're sending the Messiah. So their faith is based on looking forward. Our faith is based on looking back. The promise is the same. So for those in Isaiah's audience, the promise of Messiah is their gospel, their good news, the gift that offers them salvation. To us, this is not just a child born, this is a child born to us. Isaiah doesn't say a child will be born. He said, look, a child's gonna be born to you. This child has come to the world, to us. He's given to us. Have you ever given a gift to someone that you thought they love and they really didn't? Have you ever experienced that where the kids are playing with the box, not the toy? Or where the person goes, oh, this is incredibly wonderful. The crazy thing about a gift is that you got to accept it. you got to embrace it. You have to own it. God was sending the Messiah child into the world, given to us to do with as we desire. Here's a gift, a gift of grace, a gift of your salvation. God in his own creation walking on the planet, showing you who God is. Here's your gift. What do y'all want to do with him? That's the question Pilate asked, right? What shall we do with Jesus who's called the Christ? Think about how risky this is. God is sending himself to the world, to a sinful world that's subject to the whims of sinners. They could receive him as Messiah or they could reject him. They had free will. It would take 30 years, but they'd eventually choose to just kill him. He is, regardless, the greatest gift God has ever given to his people. Our rejection of him doesn't change who he is. We don't define his value to the world. We define his value to us. We don't define his value to the world. You define his value to you. And I define his value to me. It doesn't change his value. For to us, a child is born, Isaiah says. There can be nothing more weak, more helpless, more dependent than a child. I mean, theoretically, the Messiah could have come as a rebuilt Adam. Not like an Adam, like Adam the guy. He could have been an adult. God could have created him as the ultimate adult. But for Jesus to fully identify with humanity, to display in his life his servant nature, he had to come as a child. Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The prophecy of the birth of the Messiah reminds Israel that the Messiah would be a man. Could have been an angel, could have been a spirit, could have been anything, but Isaiah tells him, no, this is going to be a man. And oh, by the way, it's going to, he's going to be born. He's going to be human. But this God child had to be both God and man at the same time. And Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
Now, in the Hebrew, when they repeat a phrase and put something else in, like fill in the blank, that's the way they call things equal. Okay, so when he says, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. What he's saying is, they're one and the same. A child is born, a son is given. We look back on that and we go, that makes total sense. Second person of the Trinity, the son of God in a baby form. They looked at it and said, what are you talking about? What, what is this? A son is given. A child is born. Not a baby that would become a son, but rather a baby that is a son at the same time, both given at the same time. We understand this is the son of God. The child would be a man, but he'd be more than a man. He's the eternal son of God, the second person of the Godhead. The son of God had to be given to the very creation that he crafted. And on top of that, a fallen creation with a birth defect that made them hate him. But Jesus is born of the Holy Spirit, not a fallen man. It's critical to understand this. Every other person who's ever been born has been born of Adam, Adam's descendants who are fallen in sin. Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit. He has no birth defect. He is a full human who's perfect as Adam was before the fall. We needed a perfect, infinite being to offer a perfect atonement for our sins. Jesus had to be human and had to live a full human life to be able to be a sacrifice for our sins. At the same time, he had to be perfect as only God is perfect. He had to be both God and man at the same time. That brings us to something else that many of you may not have thought about before. Jesus didn't just visit earth as a human for 33 years. He added humanity to his deity. I'm going to spend some time on this because this is important. Because it completely changes the way you think about Jesus and where he is right now. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that it was more important that we understand what actually happened than to know the details of what happened. If I polled you, you could probably tell me the Christmas story. That's fantastic. But if I asked you, tell me about Jesus' humanity. What did it mean? What does that mean to you? You see, on that first Christmas morning when Jesus was born, something incredible happened. He wasn't just born into some kind of earth suit that he wore for 33 years. He became eternally human. Jesus told us the word became flesh. He didn't just put on a flesh costume. In other words, Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, God, came to earth. He didn't just put on an earth suit. He added humanity to who he is as God. And he's that way forever. He's not making a cameo in our world. He's becoming one of us. It's just so powerful when you think about it. He didn't just visit, put on an earth suit, walk around for a while, show us God, die, resurrect, and take his spirit up to heaven. He became one of us for all of eternity. He forever joined us in our humanity. 
The divine joined God and man. The symbolism of that miracle is so important to understand. The moment Jesus was born in the stable, he guaranteed that he would be fully God and fully man for all of eternity. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, would always be with us because he's one of us. He will always be the visible image of the invisible God. The child could be born because the humanity of Jesus is a starting point. There was a time before Jesus entered our planet where he was the second person of the Trinity. And then when he entered our planet, he became the second person of the Trinity who now has added humanness to his experience. Jesus the Messiah is fully God and fully man forever. There was a time when the eternal Son of God added humanity. He didn't become less God. He added human nature to his divine nature, and he became one person with two distinct natures functioning together in perfect harmony. Jesus is both God and man, and it tells us that we really are made very closely in the image of God. You see, our problem is not in our humanity. Our problem is in our fallenness. To say I'm only human is wrong. It's more accurate to say I'm only fallen. But remember that humanity that Jesus added to his divine nature wasn't sinful humanity. It was perfect humanity, born of the Spirit. When Jesus ascended to the Mount of Olives, he was in his glorified body. You remember that? He'd been around for 40 days. He presented himself to people. He had people touch him. He was in his glorified new body. Acts 1.9. As the disciples were looking on, Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going up in his righteous suit. He's coming down in his righteous suit. He went up with a human body. He now sits in the presence of God at his right hand in the same human body. The same way you see him go up is the same way he's coming back down. When Jesus was born on Christmas morning, he took on our likeness. He became one of us. At the resurrection, he traded his earthly body for a glorious body, an eternal body, but he remained human. He didn't shed his skin and become a spirit. He's fully God, fully man with a perfected human body. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transfer our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself, one day we will each have this perfect human body when he transforms us. Jesus showed us that, yes, your earthly body is a tent. It's going to die. But those who believe in Christ are going to get a glorious body for all of eternity, just like Jesus did. Paul teaches Timothy that Jesus is our mediator in heaven. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and don't miss this, the man, Christ Jesus. What he's saying is in heaven, there's one mediator between you and God, the man, Jesus. 
Notice the tense here. Paul is writing after Jesus has ascended to heaven, and he refers to him in the present as the man Jesus. He's the perfect mediator because he's fully human and fully God. He came to earth not only to be human, but to remind us that he knows what it's like to be human and to remind us of that for all of eternity. So many people think Jesus just came here for 33 years, and when he died, his body stayed here and his spirit went up to be with... That's not how it works. He had a glorified body. He goes to heaven as the precursor for all of us who will do the same. He didn't relinquish his humanity on ascension. He's a man in a resurrected body. If Jesus were not fully man, he couldn't stand in the place of sinful man and be a substitute. If he wasn't fully God, his sacrifice would be insufficient. So it's really important that we understand the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus is foundational to Christian doctrine and our hope of heaven. Because Jesus rose from the dead with a physical body, every Christian has the guarantee of his own bodily resurrection. Now Jesus is in heaven where he's pictured as sitting in the place of authority at the right hand of God. But is Jesus' body in heaven the same as his body on earth? Is it the same body? No. The Bible's clear that when Jesus was resurrected, he was given a new body. When the tomb was empty, he was recognizable to those who knew him. Jesus showed himself to his disciples after the resurrection, and over 500 people saw him. He walked on earth as a human in a glorified body. On the road to Emmaus, he walked with them and The scriptures tell us that the disciples were kept from recognizing him. However, later their eyes were open and they recognized him. It's not that he was unrecognizable. It's that God had blinded them from it. When they recognized him, they didn't go, what in the world was that? That must have been an alien. That must have been some UFO. That must have been some weird spiritual creature. No, they said it's Jesus. It looks like Jesus. He's got his body. It's a glorified body. He's the same Jesus we walked with. In fact, the very fact that he had a perfect glorified body is what made them recognize him. When he lifted up the bread and he gave thanks for it, they said, wait a minute. Their eyes are open and they see Jesus in his glorified human body. Later in the same chapter of Luke, Christ makes it plain to his disciples that he does have a physical body. He's not some disembodied spirit. He says, look, see my hands, see my feet, look at the scars, touch me. Feel me, for the Spirit does not have flesh and bones, and you see that I have them. After spending 40 days with his disciples, Jesus ascended into heaven, still human, still in a human body, and still in a human body right now in heaven at the right hand of God. His body, however, is different. It's a glorified, perfect, eternal body. Ours will be too one day. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49 describes what that body will be like, and I encourage you to go look that up. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. Our heavenly bodies will differ from our earthly ones in type of flesh, in splendor, in power, and in longevity. Paul says that the believer's body will be an image of Christ's body. In 2 Corinthians, he compares earthly bodies to tents and heavenly bodies to heavenly dwellings. Paul says the earthly tents come off, but Christians will not be left naked. They'll be given a full body. So we know that Christians will have a heavenly body just like Jesus. At his birth, 
Jesus took on a body. He took on mankind. He took on humanity, not for a little while, but for all of eternity. When he said, I'm Emmanuel, I will always be with you. He meant, I'll be with you. I'll be one of you. I'll walk with you. One day we'll all be in our glorified bodies. You see, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll all be together. We'll all be wearing the same thing. He'll forever be the God-man sacrifice for us. Christ, the creator of the universe, will forever stoop to our level. He'll be known in heaven as a tangible form that we can see, feel, touch, and hear. So a great deal's happening that first Christmas morning. Jesus was born. The second person of the Trinity added humanity to his essence. He never stopped being God, but from his birth forward, he'll never stop being man. He wasn't a God who makes a miraculous entrance and then exits. He's a God who's with us. That's what Emmanuel means. I'm with you all the time. I've become human and I'll stay that way for all of eternity, same as you. Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and the name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. I'm going to go through some of those titles in the next few weeks. But I do want to spend a moment talking about the government that's promised here. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from the time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Those who lived in Isaiah's time had no hope for their government. The government had failed them. Their government had turned their back on God. The government had failed to repent when God said, repent. The government had failed to protect them, to guard them, to provide for them. They lived in a time when their government had completely failed. Their leaders had turned far from God. The nation was under the wrath of God and soon would be punished like they could not imagine. The government had not repented. They had stiff-armed God and they were about to be wiped out. Gail Irwin writes about the government that God promises and ultimately the one we will see. What might such a government look like? First of all, it would look like it's king. Politicians of this day look for what they can get from you. Jesus looks for what he can do for you. Leaders of this day surround themselves with servants. Jesus surrounds us with his servanthood. Leaders of this day use their power to build their empire. Jesus uses his power to wash our feet and make us clean and comfortable. Leaders of this day trade their influence for money God so loved that he gave. Generals of this day require regular wars to keep their weapons and skills up to date and ensure their own advancement. Jesus brings peace and rest to hearts. The higher the plane of importance one reaches in this world, the more inaccessible he becomes. Jesus was God with us. Leaders of this day are desperate to be seen and heard. Jesus sought anonymity so he could be useful. Jesus allows things in the halls of Washington, London, Moscow, Baghdad, and Paris. So how can we ever believe the government will be on his shoulders? Actually, his government shows it's working in wonderful ways. 
Whenever I see someone who's miraculously leads a life of drugs or alcohol and is restored to his family and work, I can see that he's now governed by God. Whenever I see loving Christians gently caring for orphans and those rejected by family, I know I'm watching people now governed by God. Whenever I see people eagerly learning the Bible and joyously praising, I know who their governor is. Whenever I see people give up lucrative careers simply to go and share the good news of Jesus, I know they're governed by God. When I see pastors carefully teach and lead the flock God has given them, I know they're getting signals from the great king. When I see people leave family to live and teach in distant lands because they love the people who they've not heard, I know they're governed by God. So indeed, the government of God is alive and well and working. Often silently, mostly unseen, we can be and are by choice governed by God. Hope and joy and peace and rest cover its subjects. Justice, mercy, and grace amazingly coexist. I like this kingdom. The borders are open. Come on in, she says. Earlier, I spoke about how God reveals more and more of himself and his plan for man and how our awareness of what he's doing is always growing and always expanding. Every day we live on earth, every day we study scriptures, every day we get closer to the end, we begin to see and understand Jesus the Messiah and what he did for us. We see our Lord crucified and risen and reigning and soon to be coming back. Jesus didn't just put on some temporary human suit. He's not coming back to tweak things. He's coming back to make massive correction and kill systemic evil forever. That's why he's coming back. Here's the best part. This scripture says that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The empire of grace will forever expand. What that tells us is if we're living by faith now, just wait and see what's going to happen. If you're living full of grace now, just wait and see what's going to happen. If you're living with thanksgiving now, just wait and see what God's going to do. His triumph is always ascending, always enlarging, always accelerating, uh, accelerating, always intensifying. There will never be one, think about this, there will never be one moment for us when we say, well, that's it, that's the limit. He can't think of anything new. He's seen and done it all. We're done now. Never. It's like watching a fireworks show. You know the fireworks, there's always that one that tells you it's over, there's no more. That moment never comes. Because whatever we've seen, there's more to show. The finite will experience even more wonderfully the infinite. Every new moment will be better than the last. It's going to be incredible. And here's the great part. Scriptures say the zeal of the Lord will do this. It's not something you do. It's not something I do. It's God's passion for us because he's one of us. I'm going to continually wow you over and over and over with my love and my grace and my peace. It's going to be incredible. But you may have to get your eyes off the moment. From the moment Adam and Eve chose to reject God, God began revealing his plan to save them. As history has unfolded, God has revealed more and more about his plan to those who were willing to listen. He sent clues and truths through the prophets. He sent men who foreshadowed the Messiah like Melchizedek and Joseph and Moses and King David. He revealed more of his gospel through Jesus. 
then through the scriptures, then the disciples, and then through 2,000 years of believers. Day by day, moment by moment, God is unveiling his plan to save us. We're so blessed to be this far into the revelation. We are so blessed to be this far into the revelation. People have lived and died who just wanted to see what we've seen, to understand what we can understand, to experience what we've experienced. We know more than the disciples knew. We know more than Paul knew. We have more to base our faith and hope on than any human who's ever lived. Christmas reminds us that God kept his promise. He promised that a Messiah would come and that Messiah would be with us and that Messiah would be one of us and that Messiah would be born and he'd be human and he'd be God and he kept his promise and just like he kept his promise to them, he's gonna keep his promise to us that Messiah's coming back. See, every Christmas we experience is one closer to the last one. The details of that first Christmas morning are, for many of us, just another rerun. Yeah, I'll tell you the story. There were shepherds off in the field. They were above Bethlehem. An angel showed up. Clouds, you know, chorus showed up. It's not that it's not miraculous. It's not that it's not incredible. It's that we've seen it, heard it so many times, we've lost our wonder. But the point of Christmas was really never to look back. And this is what I want us to understand about Scripture and about this Christmas. Rarely, rarely does God ask you to look backwards. Once you surrender to him, your sins are forgiven. Everything's about the future. Everything's about the glory to come. Yes, you may be in a life right now that you're wondering what God's doing and why it's horrible. Maybe the Babylonians are on your border too. Maybe you can't see the light at the end of your tunnel. Maybe everything's dark, but God would send a message to you and a message to me. I didn't want your eyes on that stuff. I want your eyes on what's going to happen. I want your eyes on what's going to come. You see, the things that happen to you on earth are necessary because what's going to happen later is so great, so important that it's necessary. The point of Christmas is not to look back, it's to look forward. What Christmas should remind us of is that God is faithful and Jesus is coming back. And the wonder that we have may not be with his first arrival, but we darn sure look forward and go, man, can you imagine what's going to happen when he comes back? It's like I said last week, we're going to look at each other and we're going to go, I knew it was true. I knew he would come back. I knew he would solve everything. That's the message of Christmas. You look backwards to see that Messiah came, but that makes you look forward to see what's going to happen. Not only does Christmas make us look forward, but so does communion. When we take communion, God says, Jesus says, look, you're going to proclaim my death until I return. What he says is, I want you to stop and I want you to get your eyes off whatever's going on in your world right now today. Because it's going to be gone like that. What happens here on earth is just a, a blip on the dot of eternity. I want you to get your eyes off of whatever you're doing right now. I want you to focus on what's going to happen in the future. And Jesus says when we take communion, we are sharing in his experience until his return. That's what Christmas is about. That's what communion is about. On the night before Jesus died, he turns to his disciples and he says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, you have no idea what's about to happen. Tomorrow's going to be the worst day of your life. 
This bread is my body broken for you. You don't know what that means, but you will. This wine is my blood poured out for you. You don't know what that means, but you will. You see, because God's unveiling. Tomorrow you'll have a new perspective. Tomorrow you'll know more than you know today. But every time you do this, I want you to think about me. And it's interesting, he didn't say, think about the sacrifice I made. I find that so fascinating. He didn't say, look, I want you to really think about all that I suffered and all that I did and my blood poured out for you and my body. That's all true stuff. But what he said was, every time you do this, you're proclaiming my death until I return. What he's saying is communion's about looking forward. Thanking God for the future that you've yet to experience as if it's already here. So as you take communion today, and basically here we just, you come down, get a cup, go back to your chair, pray with God, and when you're ready, just share communion on your own. And if you're not a believer, that's cool. Just stay where you are and think about what we've been talking about. But as you take communion today, I really want you to think about what you need to do in your life today to keep the promise of eternity forever on your horizon. To not get so myopic with your problems and your issues that you miss the big picture. Because it's for the big picture that Jesus became man and is coming back. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you died for us. I thank you that you were and are fully human and fully God. Thank you, God, that you paid the price for our sins, but you point us towards the future. God, we know you're coming back. We can feel it in our bones and in our spirit. God, thank you for being faithful to us. As we take communion today, would you help us just to remember the promise that's on our horizon, the hope that we have for our future, and the grace that we receive through faith. We ask it all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you.